Let's pray, and we'll open up to Mark chapter 3. Lord, we, uh, we know what your word says, that, you, uh, that, that one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And uh, Lord, we pray in this season of our lives, in this season of, of cultural change, we know, Lord, that things will never be the same. Uh, but yet, Lord, we expect, we expect that, that as darkness grows, uh, as people call good evil and evil good, that in the midst of that, that those that follow you, those that love you, those that know you, are, 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 there are many more than we, we understand, Lord. Just as Elijah felt he was so alone, and yet there were 7,000 that had not given in. And so, Lord, we, we sit here today looking, examining ourselves and not just pointing the finger. Lord, make us uh, disciples. Lord, make us light. Help us, Lord, to be what you've called us to be, uh, to be unified, to be harmonious, to continue to keep your word and, and your presence primary in our services, Lord. And that you would be continuing to transform people. We're so thankful to see that pow- your power hasn't changed. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that we're not facing anything that, no other, that other cultures haven't faced as well. And, and you've, you've been consistent. Governments come and governments go. Supreme courts come and supreme courts go. But you, Lord, stay the same forever and ever. And we're thankful we have that constancy that we can build our life on, on, the, on the firm foundation, not on shifting sand. So it's in Jesus' name we pray and ask you to open our eyes to see wondrous things from your word. All God's people said, amen. Mark chapter 3, as we make our way through the gospel of Mark, some would call it the gospel of Peter, uh, again, because uh, we believe from church history and from uh, some other sources that Mark's, uh, Mark was a very young man during the time of Jesus, and uh, uh, Peter had traveled with him, and, and it's quite likely that Peter had uh, shared with Mark the events that he was an eyewitness to, and then Mark simply recorded them in this gospel. So some would say this is the gospel of Peter, but uh, it has come to be known as the gospel of Mark. He's the one that is given credit with penning it. Uh, we've watched as Jesus has uh, conflicts with the religious folks of his day, uh, their traditions compared to his truth. And this has gotten us to the place after, I think, a series of about five conflicts, much of them, many of them regarding the Sabbath day, some regarding fasting and other traditions that they had, have gotten us down to chapter 3, verse 6, where we see after Jesus had healed this man on the Sabbath with the withered hand, uh, it caused, it was so troubling to the uh, religious traditionalists the Pharisees uh, specifically, that they began to plot, verse 6 says, how they might destroy Jesus. So now they are plotting, how are we going to get rid of this guy? And that's oftentimes the way people respond to conflict. Let me just get rid of the conflict by getting rid of you or, or that person that I'm having conflict with. And so if we can just get rid of this Jesus, just get rid of the troublemaker, uh, things will be easier for us and we, don't, we won't have to deal with it. And you might get the, the uh, impression from this that because you know, there's so much focus on, on Jesus and his relationship with the Pharisees that you might think that there's a very widespread rejection of him. But actually, we begin in, in verse 7, and we'll see there's actually a very widespread acceptance of him. Look at verse 7. But Jesus withdrew his, with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. 
So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. For he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. So, yes, there were some that were rejecting him. There were some that were adverse to him. But others were willingly ready to follow him uh, and, and to come to him, especially those that had these, uh, these very great needs in their life. Uh, so he withdraws after leaving the, the synagogue. He doesn't stay there and get into a fist fight with the Pharisees. He knows exactly what they're planning, but he doesn't stay there and confront them. It's not time for that yet. He's going to confront him in a different way down the road. But verse 7 says he withdrew from there to the sea, to the Sea of Galilee. And we see the word great multitude, great multitude, multitude. And that's in the Greek, it's an exceedingly great multitude. It's hard to estimate how many people were following Jesus at this time or were coming to him. But we know it was a tremendous number of people, possibly thousands of people. And look where they're coming from. This is not a limited uh, revival, so to speak. This is not a, a limited situation. They're coming from Galilee, the region where he's preaching. They're coming from Jerusalem and Judea, the southern part uh, of Israel, they're coming from Tyre and Sidon, the, the area of Lebanon, north of Israel. That would be Lebanon today. Uh, they're coming from the area on the other side of the Jordan, which we would, would call Jordan. All, the, all over the place, they're coming in thousands, a great multitude of people. And, and this is presenting some challenges for Jesus. Uh, he is, there, there, so many are coming to him. It's creating almost like a frenzy. I mean, just imagine the picture. Word is spreading. I mean, imagine... If, if they're, they're emerged on the scene in Charlottesville, you pick Martha Jefferson or UVA, I don't care, a, a great physician, an amazing doctor. I mean, you, know, you guys share doctor stories, don't you? Well, I've, I found a great doctor, and his name is this, and he works here, and we recommend doctors to each other, don't we? What if you found, what if you went to a doctor and, he, and completely healed you? Like you were totally, you would tell people, wouldn't you? This guy, he, this, this guy, this woman, she really helped me out, you know, diagnosed me and now imagine the great physician walking into the hospital, doing, you know, healing some, and words begins to spread through the hospital. How long do you think it would take that when that doctor, when the great physician showed up for rounds in the morning, that that doctor wouldn't be piled upon with bed? I mean, there'd be beds crashing. I know I'd be, if I had a sick relative, if I had someone that, was, that had a disease or cancer or something going on, had been in an accident, and I knew the doctor was in the house who had the power to heal, you better believe I'd be unplugging the stuff and, go, and get in the bed. We'd be in the elevator heading to find this guy. And there were so many people that they had to take special measures. Look at verse 9. He told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. And this is what's happening. So they're thronging to him. There's a frenzy going on. People go nuts over things like cabbage patch dolls and crush each other. Now imagine he's one person, and around him is this crowd of thousands of people. And you know when people want something, like, you know, all manners go out the door. And so they're crushing, and, and they're jockeying for position, and they're trying to, and in that frenzy of trying to get to him, they're crushing each other, and they're crushing him. And the word to crush is the word used of when you crush grapes to get the juice out. 
So because of that, because of this great crushing that's going on, because of this great crowd, they have to have a boat ready. So the boat would, would row along the shore while Jesus would walk and all these people would, would be coming to him and, uh, so that he could escape into this boat for his own safety. And then sometimes he would teach from there. So the ministry of Jesus is changing. It used to be that he could, you know, he could quietly show up in a place. I mean, just a few chapters ago, he could show up in a house, and the house was crowded, but, you know, standing room only, but there was room enough for guys to lower their friend down through the ceiling. And, and things are, word is spreading, and people are hearing, and then they're coming from all over the place. And this is changing the nature. I wonder, you know, I put myself in, in Jesus' sandals in the story, just in terms of ministry, and I know in the world we live in, there are way more people in need than there are prepared to meet the need. And I feel that as a pastor. I mean, this is sort of like pastoral confession morning, right? You'll feel sorry for me. At the, no, you won't feel sorry for me. Uh, this is, I, I feel, and I think you understand uh, as well, there is a, a, the need of humanity right now is crushing. There are so many that are sick. And I'm not speaking physically. There are, there are many that are physically sick, and that's hard enough. There are so many that are emotionally sick, that are, are sick from loneliness, that are sick from sin, that are sick uh, in, in their personalities, in their identities. So many, so much dysfunction. And then w- when there are those few, I mean, Jesus would tell his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The critics are many. Those that love to talk about ministry are many. But the la- those that are actually willing to get in and dig in and do ministry are few. The challenge of that is, as I, again, as I put myself in Jesus' shoes and understand and recognize this crushing nature of the need of humanity, uh, I just did a little research last night uh, about uh, some of the most dangerous jobs in the world. And as you would expect, maybe uh, you would maybe be able to guess some of the most dangerous jobs. If you are a crab fisherman in Alaska, that's really dangerous. If you are an underwater welder, now who invented that? I don't know. Whose idea was un- welding underwater? Um, but that, that's a very dangerous job. Being a logger out west, that's a really dangerous job. But pastor didn't make the list. And I'm not sure. I've got to call somebody. Because there's a lot of people, you know, in these other jobs, there's people that are, are being killed at their line, in their line of work. I mean, trees falling on loggers and fishermen being thrown overboard and drowning. And, but I think that just like the loggers, just like Jesus, pastors, those in ministry can be crushed by the need. And just like Jesus and just like pastors, or excuse me, just like uh, underwater welders or just like fishermen, we can drown in the, in the need of humanity. Because the laborers are few. The critics are many, but the laborers are few. And let me just give you a few statistics here. You may be already aware of this, but uh, this says many uh, members, this is from the New York Times in 2010. Members of the clergy now suffer from obesity, hypertension, and depression at rates higher than most Americans. In the last decade, their use of antidepressants has risen while their life expectancy has fallen. Many would change jobs if they could. So listen to these percentages. Uh, Of pastors, 25% don't know where to turn when they have a family or personal conflict or issue. 25% of pastors' wives see their husband's work schedule as a source of conflict. 33% of pastors say that they felt burned out within their first five years of ministry. 33% say that being in ministry is an outright hazard to their family. 
45% say they've experienced depression or burnout to the extent that they need to take a leave of absence from ministry. 50% feel unable to meet the needs of the job. 57% would leave the pastor and do something else if they could. 70% have no close friends. 75% report severe stress, causing anguish, worry, bewilderment, anger, depression, fear, and alienation. 80% insufficient time with their family, spouse. 80% believes pastoral ministry affects their families negatively. 90% feel unqualified or poorly prepared for the work. 1,500 pastors leave their ministries each month due to burnout, conflict, or moral failure. Doctors, lawyers, and clergy have the most problems with drug abuse, alcoholism, and suicide. And, and the usual response that one of these things says that the... Um, 23% of pastors have been fired or pressured to resign at least once in their careers. So pastors as a whole are, are drowning, uh, many of them, and then, and then forced to resign or, or treated harshly. So why do I say, why do I bring this up? I bring this up to say that I understand and we see there's this, this crushing uh, need of humanity and Jesus is going through that uh, even now and he's going to have to deal with that because the problem is those that are, that are called this way into ministry we have this desire that we want to do. We want to be there. And I'm sure for Jesus, this is a strange thing that he's not able to personally connect with all the people that are thronging him. And I wonder if he feels, you know, uh, a little bit of this change, this transition that his ministry is going through as he's, as he's going through these things. No longer can he, can he personally touch everyone. And, and that's a change. That's a difference. So look at verse 10. He healed so many. This is why they're coming. He healed many so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. So all these afflicted people, you know, whatever they had, they were all coming to him. And even, it says, unclean spirits, even on a spiritual level, whenever they saw him, the, the unclean spirits fell down and cried out, saying, you are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. And, and you know, wh why did he warn people not to make him known? A lot of people speculate uh, it could be because he doesn't want, uh, he doesn't need the demonic spirits to be witnessing to who he is. Yeah, that's a, a, not the people he's wanting to, to uh, tell others about him. Uh, others say because it wasn't time for him to be fully revealed yet, but that doesn't seem to be working, does it? It's kind of hard to hide anymore. But this is awesome about Jesus. And, and he, he saw the people that they were like sheep not having a shepherd and he had compassion on them. That was his response to all this. Not anger or frustration or burnout, but compassion. So how does, it, on one hand, we've got God in the flesh, right? But on the other hand, he's human. And he individually can no longer meet and address all of the needs of all the people that are coming to him. So what's he do? He appoints ambassadors. Look at the next. This is the, all the setup for verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted. And they came to him. Then he appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sickness and cast out demons. And then there's the list of the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. And they went into a house. 
So it seems to me the flow of the passage here is, is this calling of these 12 uh, disciples, his intimate group, is a response to the fact that the ministry needs are growing and that Jesus is no longer able to, in his humanity, meet these things. Now, the day of Pentecost is a beautiful thing because the, the Spirit of God poured out on all flesh. He indwells and empowers all, everybody that, that comes to him to receive him to do ministry, to be literally witnesses, to be his witnesses. And we'll talk about that a little further in a few minutes. But he goes up on the mountain. I think it's Luke that tells us that he prayed all night. I mean, Jesus, he's got to choose some people to be his followers. He's not going to take resumes. He's not going to have a vote among all the disciples, you know, all the followers. Hey, you know, who do you guys think should follow me? That's not how he does it. He prays. He, He seeks his father. Lord, who should I pick? And then God says, there's a fisherman named Peter. Are you sure? I mean, that, 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 I mean, we could have some other. Not a single rabbi in the whole list. Not a single educated expert in the Bible in the whole list. That doesn't make any sense. But these are the guys. This, this is like the bad news bears. Some of you know this already. This is, the, this is, you know, did anybody grow up playing kickball on the playground at school? Yeah, some of the old folks are nodding their heads now. I grew up playing kickball, you know, and so that you'd always have to appoint the two team captains. And the team captains, we'd all, uh, all the riffraff would line up along the, the you know, the, the backdrop there, the, 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 the gates and things in the back and the, the fencing. And we'd all line up, you know, all different sizes, different shapes, you know, and, and the two captains would start picking out. The, the jocks would go first, you know, the kids, that, the big football players that could knock that ball a mile if they could connect with it. Man, they'd be first picked and then, and it would go until there's down to like three kids. And the three kids are going, I hope I'm not last. You know, I'm last all the time. Maybe some of you were last, picked last. And you just know that feeling of, ah, I, don't, I just don't have, you know, nobody wants me to be on their team. Jesus picked opposite. <laughs> he, he's, picking, he's starting at the bottom. You know, instead of starting in Jerusalem and, and with the rabbinical schools and with the, the guys that are trained and, and all, he doesn't start there. Although some of them do become his followers, he picks out, these guys, and, and we'll, get to, we'll look through that list in just a minute. But the purpose is that they're going to be uh, his full, they're going to be in full-time ministry so that they can help out Jesus and represent him and go where uh, he would go if he could to, to these various places. So he's going to send them out to do ministry. And just where we are as a church and why I appreciate this passage is because just as a church, sort of things have shifted for us a bit. And I know for me as a pastor, the, the challenge to avoid burnout is recognizing that I can no longer meet all the needs of everyone in the fellowship. There was a day when, when myself or Frank or Brad, would, you know, we had this small church and I knew everybody by name and I could be there if you were in the hospital and I could be there if, if you needed prayer and I could be there to do counseling with you. But those days are shifting for us as a church. And so on one hand, having people, you know, what, if, what if Matthew... When Jesus said, follow me, he dropped everything at the tax office, dropped everything to follow him. What if Matthew said, you know, I really appreciate uh, that the offer, but, you know, the ta- it's good money in the tax office. I mean, if I follow you, you know, you're poor. I don't want to be poor. I want to be rich. And if I follow you, that's not going to be good for my, fi- my 401k and my, you know, my this and that. And I don't even, stuff, stuff I don't even have. It's not everybody's calling. He chooses 12. I mean, I'd have chosen like 150. 
I want a lot of people out there. He chooses 12. And, and they're going to be the ones that, that are going to help him with ministry. And, and so there would be times when there would be a need, and it was Peter that showed up. I'm like, oh, Peter? Like, where's Jesus? We don't want Peter. We want Jesus, we want Jesus to pray. Because anyway, I heard you guys tried to cast out a demon, and you couldn't do it. You know, we don't want the, the, we don't want the B apostles. We want the A-team. We, we want Jesus himself. But it wasn't going to be them. Look, he, he calls, he appoints, prays all night, and he, he called to himself those he himself wanted for this full time. God needs people that are involved in their jobs, their everyday life, do accountants and bankers and doctors and nurses and lawyers and all that to do ministry right where you are. So please don't hear me say this is everybody's calling to be full time engaged in active ministry. But it's certainly some people's calling. And the danger now is that we go, Lord, I, I love to be your follower, but I know you're calling me to, to, to do this, but I don't think I want to. I like my job. I, and that was me. Look, I'm, that was me. When I was working with horses, I mean, that was a manly job. I worked with a hammer and an anvil and fire. Beat that, you know? I mean, that's, that's manly. And I was, pr- I was proud to do a manly job, and you know, and... And I could, I, I've told, some of you guys know the story, but, you know, we'd, um, my wife grew up in, on Long Island, and every year they had a 4th of July party, and we'd go to the party, and, and uh, it was a big, you know, a big, a whole, their whole town, a big um, parade and all that, and she grew up, and there's one guy that grew up in her neighborhood that sailed on the America's Cup boat. It's like, whoa, okay. There's another guy, he, he was a Navy SEAL and became a neurosurgeon. I'm like, oh. You know, so we'd meet, and what's the first question guys ask each other? What do you do for a living? And it was great when I was a blacksmith. Cause I'm, a, you know, well, I'm a Navy SEAL neurosurgeon. Well, pff, you know, I work with fire, you know. I bang on steel, and I eat nails. And... So I could hang with that, you know. And they're guzzling down a Budweiser, and, you know. But uh, then I had to say I'm a pastor, and I fought with God. You know, I told God, God, I like doing what I do. Don't, I'll, do, I'll teach Bible studies as long as you want. Until the day I draw my last breath, I'll teach Bible studies. Just don't put me in full-time ministry. Well, you see how that went. I didn't win that conversation. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it for the world. God did a great work in my life. But it, it was a calling for me to give up, to put down my hammer, put down my anvil, and follow him. And it wasn't easy. But it's been fantastic. And I look at the way these guys, Peter, what would, his, what would the rest of his life have been? He'd have died an obscure fisherman on the Sea of Galilee. But instead, he preached a sermon on the day of Pentecost that saved 5,000 people. He walked on water. Yeah, he had his failures. But what a life, walking with Jesus. These were the guys, look at the first qualification. He, he called them, they came to him, and he appointed 12. I think that's probably the maximum number he could individually disciple. We don't have a, we have a capacity for relationships, don't we? Like, I would love to be all of your best friends. But I have a capacity for personal relationships. And that's hard. Because we have a shepherd's heart, and we want to do it all. And we want to be there. But the reality is now, I can't be. So there are other people that do ministry. You guys minister to one another. And it may be someone else that's showing up at the hospital. It may be someone else that's praying with you. So on one side, we need people willing to get engaged in full-time ministry. On the other side... I need people in the church that are willing to understand that Pastor Steve can't be everywhere. 
and to, to let that be okay because I deal with my own guilty conscience of not being able to be there for you. Yeah, this, this is pastoral confessions day after all, isn't it? But it's hard when you've got that shepherd's heart. And so he appoints these guys. He appoints the 12. And look what the per- number one purpose, that they might be with him. That's the first place to start. It doesn't matter how many letters you have after your name, how many Bible passages you have memorized. The first and most important thing about being uh, sent out on Jesus' behalf is to be with him. And this is so cool because later on in the book of Acts, these are the guys. You wouldn't be sitting where you're sitting if it wasn't for these guys. These guys carried the torch after Jesus was crucified, resurrected, ascended to heaven. They continued to carry the torch. They were given power to be witnesses, and they did it. They went out, and they counted it joy to be persecuted for the name of Christ. And, and the, the astounding thing was the other people, the, the, the religious scholars, the educated people with all their certificates and the degrees would look at these guys and say, what in the world's going on? These guys are fishermen and tax collectors. How in the world are they doing this? How are they turning the world upside down? And this is what they noticed. They noticed that these guys were uneducated and untrained men. But what they noticed is that they had been with Jesus. That was the factor. And churches even today have no idea how to select a pastor. Many do. Some do. But many don't. Because what we're looking for now is, well, how many degrees do you have? What are the letters after name? How much education do you have? And none of that stuff is bad in and of itself. But unless that person has spent time with Jesus, what good is it? This is, did these guys have degrees? Had they been to, to seminary? Had they, their seminary was the seminary of Jesus Christ. And for, for I, I, you guys know, I don't have a seminary degree. I, didn't, I don't have the certificates and education and all that stuff. But for the last 15 years of my life, I've been sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning from his word. And, and so I'm no different than you. So you're like, well, I'd, I'd love to do some more ministry, but I don't know if I'm qualified. You want to get qualified? Spend time with Jesus. That's it. Spend time, to spend time with him. That's the point. That's the first and most important thing is, is to spend time with Jesus. Are you spending time with Jesus? You go, well, I'd love to have better ministry. I'd love to be, be more fruitful. Spend time with Jesus. Get to, how can you, he's appointing them He's anointing them. He's ordaining them to go out and minister on his behalf. How can they do that if they don't know him? And so this is a training time where he spends time with them and they get to watch him. They get to learn from him. They get to hear him. He's teaching them. So first they've got to spend time with him. And then from that, he sends them out to preach, to declare, to explain, to invite now, I like that too because there are some churches where there's this, the mega church pastor and he's the guy and he does all the preaching because he's the personality and people will show up to church and if he's not preaching that day, they'll turn around and leave. That happens. You know that. And, and that's going to happen with Jesus. Well, what, Jesus isn't preaching today? All right, we're going home. I thought Jesus was preaching today. He's usually, I'm, so, you explained, I'm sorry, usually Jesus is the preacher here. and He's not here today, so, you know, I don't know about this bozo. We're going home. But this is what's going to happen. Jesus is now empowering others to do the work, to do the, to do the preaching. And the word to have power, he sent them out to preach and to have power. Uh, circle that word power. It's not the word dunamis. In the book of Acts, we talk about dunamis, the word power. That means it's uh, it, where we get the word dynamite. 
And it's this explosive power that we see happening when he gave them power to be witnesses in Acts uh, chapter 2 is where that happens. And that's a different word, power. The word power here, it really means authority. So they're going to be ambassadors. They're going to be endued with the authority from Jesus to act on and represent him on his behalf. So when he can't be there, these guys are going to be there in his, because he can't be everywhere, right? Not, not at this time. So he's going to, these guys are now given the, the authority. Now I can't go out, like I would love to just buy a siren. Like they've got to sell those on an Amazon. Amazon's got to sell like personal siren. You plug them into the lighter and you put them up on the car and then you can make citizens arrests. What, you, I know you want to, you've tried. Some of you would have uh, machine guns installed on the hood of your car if you could. So that when you were going to, through the circle right there by the lake, that you could tell them that's a yield sign, not a stop sign. You know what I'm talking about. I'm digressing. But I'd oh, love to make a citizen's arrest. But then there's the guy behind me who's going, I'd love to make a citizen's arrest. He's talking about me. But I don't have the authority to do so. I, I could dep- wouldn't it be great if we could deputize ourselves? We'll all become sheriff's deputies. And, but we don't, we, don't, we don't have the power the authority of the state, if I go up and say, excuse me, you're under arrest. Like, who are you? You know, get out of, get out of here. You're not, you can't do that. You're, you're a pastor, not a sheriff. That's right. I can't. I don't have the authority to do that. That's the word authority that's being spoken of here. Imagine if he gave them his power. I mean, his, his dunamis. <laughs> We've got two guys called the sons of thunder. What are they going to do with the power? It's not that, not, not, not that kind of power that's being spoken of. The power that's being spoken of is the authority to proclaim in Jesus' name that people would be healed and demons would be cast out. And then it was, whose power is it? It's Jesus' power. See, Peter recognizes this in the book of Acts after they heal the, the man who's been lame at the gate, beautiful, and he stands up, he starts running around and, and, and jumping up and down, and everybody goes, wow, that's amazing. And they start to look at Peter like somehow it was him that did it. And he says, whoa, 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 don't look at me like somehow it was my power that made this man whole. But it was, it was the name of Jesus through faith in his name that restored him. That's where restoration comes from. Please don't look at the pastor. I don't have, in and of myself, I have no power. I have the authority to sit here and tell you today that if you come to Jesus, you will be saved. That whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. I have the, the authority to say that, but it's his power that saves you. It's his power that forgives you. It's his sacrifice. Does that make sense? Somewhat. Okay. He appoints the twelve that they might uh, be with him, that they send him out to preach, and that they have power to heal sicknesses and cast out demons. So real quickly, who are these guys? Number one, he usually tops the list, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. So we know Simon, we, we know him as Peter. He wrote two books in the New Testament. He was a fisherman. His brother's name is Andrew. His nickname, so Jesus gives him, he doesn't change his name, he gives him a nickname. And his nickname is The Rock. That's a great nickname, isn't it? Or Rocky. Now, I'm a Philadelphia guy, so I appreciate a guy nicknamed Rocky. And that's Peter's nickname, which is so interesting because his walk with Jesus was somewhat rocky, wasn't it? Uh, ups and downs and... But we appreciate Simon or Simon Peter because he is the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth. He's always managed to stick his foot in his mouth, right? You know, he was impulsive. 
he would say the wrong thing. You know, in one sentence, he comes up with this great truth. In the next sentence, he's being rebuked by Jesus, you know, because he missed the point totally. And so him being in this list gives us hope that if he can make it, if he can deny Christ three times and still be uh, reinstated into ministry, there's hope for you and I. So this is, this is Simon, who he gave the, the name Peter, the only disciple who walked on water. What a life. What a life he had. What a life different than hanging out and, and pulling in fish on the Sea of Galilee. What an opportunity he took. And, and what a, what a, he was crucified. All these guys were, were martyred, except for John. We'll talk about him in a minute. All these guys, Peter crucified upside down, not feeling worthy to be crucified right side up as Jesus was. This is what God made of this big, burly fisherman. God took him, molded him. He spent time with him, filled him with his spirit. And, and he preached a sermon that, that brings thousands to Christ. He was the, the, the Billy Graham of that time. Verse 17 says, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. These guys are great. I mean, this is a classic. These two brothers, who uh, were also fishermen up there in the Sea of Galilee, uh, Peter and Andrew were brothers. James and John were brothers. Jesus says, hey, follow me. And uh, they immediately they drop their nets and they begin to follow Jesus. Now, they have this nickname, the Sons of Thunder, like they had a biker gang or something. You know, could you picture the leather across the back, Sons of Thunder, you know, and get chains and tattoos everywhere and piercings. These were tough guys, Sons of Thunder. How did they get that nickname? Well, they got the nickname because they, had, they were with Jesus, and they'd entered into, you know how nicknames come up, right? Something happens, and it, it spawns a nickname. They enter into this city in Samaria, and they're trying to find a place to stay. And it would be normal for them to be shown hospitality. Oh, someone would open their house, but no one would. No one would let Jesus and his disciples come and stay with them. So they're on their way out of the city. And James and John are talking, uh, whispering back and forth. And, and finally they say, you know what? Jesus, we got an idea. We know how to handle the situation. Oh, yeah, really? How's that? Well, we remember reading a story about a guy named Elijah. And he called down fire from heaven. And we thought it'd be great that we could call down fire from heaven on these losers that wouldn't let you in, and we'd just smoke them. How about that? Would that work? In Jesus' name. We'll smoke them. So he said, man, you guys are, that's thunderous, man. You guys are sons of thunder. But actually what Jesus says to them, because, because as we talk about the cultural, moral condition, um, there are many of you that will be tempted on Facebook or in, in a conversation to become sons of thunder. What do we do about it? I think God should just smoke them. I mean, Sodom and Gomorrah. Let's do that again. Let's do that thing again, God. God never took pleasure in the death of the wicked. And he tells these two guys, these sons of thunder, he says, Listen, you guys don't know what spirit you are of. I didn't come to destroy people's lives, but to save them. You want to represent me? You want to, want, to, want to represent what I stand for? Then it's not about calling fire down from heaven to destroy people. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. It comes about by telling about my love and my goodness. We, we, we still call sin, sin. But you can do it as a son of thunder or a son of the Father. Now, the interesting thing, James would become the first martyr of the church, uh, well, besides Jesus, of course. 44 A.D., he would be martyred. And John would write five books of the New Testament. He'd live the longest of all the disciples, uh, probably to 90 or 100, he would be exiled to the island of Patmos, burned in boiling oil, didn't die, uh, wrote the book of Revelation on the island of Patmos, came back from exile, set up shop in Ephesus, became a pastor and elder in the church in Ephesus. 
And he would enter into the church. They would carry him in as an old man. And he would say as he was being carried to the church, my little children, imagine a hundred-year-old guy just coming in, looking at all the, the, the young people in the church. My little children love one another. So the son of thunder, through a life of walking with the Lord, has then become known to us affectionately as the apostle of love. How does that happen? How do you go from being angry and bitter about the way you grew up, about the things that happened to you in your life? How do you go from, from just being critical and, and harsh to becoming a person who is, whose message is love? It's the transformation of Jesus Christ. There's no other explanation. And so John would say, they'd say, John, why are you always telling us to love each other? Like, what's the deal? And he'd say, little children, if that's all you did, it would be enough. If there's one thing we have to get straight as a church, it's love one another. And he said, that, that was, if you want to boil it down, that's the message. So that's James and John, the, uh, the sons of thunder. That was their nickname. Andrew was the first disciple uh, he was following John the Baptist, began to follow Jesus. He invites Peter. Peter becomes this great person in ministry, this great name, and Andrew uh, disappears into obscurity. We don't really know very little about Andrew other than he led Peter to Christ. And some of you guys have that ministry. You lead someone to Christ, they get on fire, they go out and start this great ministry, and then and like, wait, hey, wait a second, wait a second. I led you to, I should have the great ministry. But some of you, you have this quiet, behind-the-scenes ministry where you just empower other people. You just teach other people, and they go, and they, have the, the, they get seen, and you're just willing to be in the background. That's Andrew. Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew. We remember Matthew, the tax collector, Matthew Levi. We met him a few chapters ago. Uh, Thomas, that's Doubting Thomas. He ends up, church history tells us, uh, being martyred down in India. He took the gospel to India. James, the son of Alphaeus. Some call him James the Less. We wrote, know relatively little about him. Uh, Thaddeus. Simon the Canaanite, there's an interesting guy. He's a guy I can't wait to meet. Um, the word Canaanite doesn't mean that he was from the land of Canaan. You can write Simon, next to Simon the Canaanite, you can write Zealot. He was part of a political party called the Zealots, the Zealot Party. And they had taken it upon themselves by using violence and terrorism to, to uh, come against anybody who supported Rome. So these guys, one group of them would carry, they were called the Sicarii, and they would carry knives, or the dagger men. These were the dagger men. They would carry knives in their, in their robes. And if they were walking through a crowd, and they knew you were a supporter of Rome, they'd pull out their knife, stab you, put it back in, and keep walking. That was the zealot party. And, and the, the, word for, uh, the, the word Canaanite here comes from the Hebrew word for, um, for zealous or jealous. So now imagine, this is the locker room. This is, this is the bad news bears. This is the locker room. We've got four fishermen, a tax collector, and a terrorist. It sounds like a bad joke, doesn't it? Four fishermen, a tax collector, and a terrorist walk into a room with Jesus. And, but now Matthew supported Rome, and Simon was a terrorist against Rome. How did they ever work this out? How did they ever figure this out? Somehow they did. Somehow they did. And, and, and here we are today. Because these guys forsook everything to make sure that the message got out. Filled with the Spirit. Empowered by God. Willing to be persecuted. Willing to go where necessary. And, and finally, of course, we've got uh, Judas Iscariot, who uh, we know, you and I know that story, familiar uh, with that, that he was the one that betrayed Jesus with a kiss. Ends up committing suicide. Uh, a contrast between he and Peter, who also denied the Lord, 
Yet Peter uh, receives, Peter's broken. He's repentant and he's restored. Uh, Judas regretted what he did, but never, never took to himself the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and ended up sorrowing in such a way that led him to, uh, to suicide. One of Jesus' disciples uh, committed suicide. Wouldn't, wouldn't accept him, wouldn't receive him. So this is the bad news bears, folks. And as I invite Phil to come back up, we'll close there. What is This Wednesday night, we'll talk more about these things, but I wanted to plant some seeds for you all to think uh, seriously about the times we live in and about what, what if, so the question I have for you, what if every Christian was like you? What if everybody uh, did what you did as a Christian? How would the, what would the nature of the church be? Would the church be strong or would the church be weak? Would the church be active or would the church be asleep? I'm just asking the question. I ask that of my own life. Before I point fingers out, before I look at specks in other people's eyes, I'm always looking for the log in my own. And so as these things are coming about, as I'm reading about the disciples, as I read the book of Acts and I see what they did, I ask myself, church, what's really important? Church, what's our response? Is our response to yell at the darkness and to really turn on the light? And what sacrifice might that involve on your part to do so? I'll leave you with this, and, and, and then we'll stand and sing. Uh, you know, we've been praying as a church about, you know, church planting in other places, being involved, because, you know, we, we uh, have some friends over in Italy, and, and there's a Calvary Chapel Bible College there, and, and there are a few churches in the north of Italy. Uh, there are there's a couple of Calvary chapels, but there's very, very, very little in terms of, of Bible-teaching churches. They're starving to death. We have a church in America on every corner, just about. We have 40-some, at least 40-some churches in Fluvanna County, at least in our county of 26,000 people. There are cities of hundreds of thousands in northern Italy where there's not a single Bible-teaching church. And so I was just praying, Lord, where can we, where can we get involved in, in church planting around the world? You know, we hate to sit here and just get fat while other people starve. Where can we get involved? And the Lord spoke to me and said, Steve, pick anywhere. Pick anywhere and go. Pick anywhere. So I was like, yeah, I mean, there's, no, there's nowhere. There, there's nothing there. So we're praying about what the Lord is doing, and I'm just impacted by these things. I'm very impacted by these things personally, and just praying for us as a church and for myself personally. Lord, where are you taking us next? I, I, the sky's not falling. The Lord is alive. Jesus is alive. He's risen. And he said, on this rock, I will build my church. So we don't have to worry about that. Let's just start hammering, right? Let's just keep hammering away, teaching people, uh, sharing the Word of God. Can we do that? Amen? Let's stand.